0: This
1: is Series 1, Episode 2 of the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. In this podcast, I will discuss how your knowledge of insects will benefit your fly fishing experience. This podcast is titled Entomology. Maybe you want to take notes. Maybe you want to sit back and relax and listen. Either way, I will have notes and visual aids available at robsnowwhite.com. Please click on the podcast link for more information. Entomology is the study of insects. Insects belong to the kingdom Animalia, belonging to the phylum arthropoda, arthro, jointed, and pod, meaning foot. Now, taxonomic nomenclature would continue with class order, family, genus, and species. You learned that in biology class and you never thought you would have to use it again. I'm bringing it back to you now. Insects have been around for millions of years. Insects were the first organisms to fly, which allowed them to disperse in search of food, habitats, mates, which spread their genetic information, and escape predation. There are certain insects that spend a portion of their life in water, and some that spend their entire life in water. These insects require a specific acidity or pH in that water, certain temperatures, and chemicals and other pollutants can affect them living in the water. Thus, if some of the insects I speak about in this podcast are not found in certain bodies of water, there's something wrong. They're the canary in the coal mine. They're predicting future environmental issues. And for the most part, I'm going to speak of freshwater insects that live in warm and cold water. Insects are, for the most part, small. They're limited by their exoskeletons in flight and locomotion, so they're not going to be too large. Exceptions being giant beetles in Amazon and some large walking sticks in New Guinea. Insects also comprise a major component of fish diets. Insects occur in high population densities and are generally easy for fish to catch and eat except for the ones with large wings and noxious defensive chemicals. Fish tend to sip the smaller insects and gulp larger ones. Insects are highly nutritious. They're composed of a complex carbohydrate called chitin, which is chemically the same as the structure of mushrooms. So next time you go to your local restaurant and order a mushroom pizza, you might as well be getting a caddisfly or mayfly pizza because chemically they're the same. And eating insects for fish is metabolically efficient. The amount of calories gained by eating insects is greater than the amount of calories lost in the process of pursuing, chasing, and consuming those insects. Insects are also considered our selective organisms. In ecology terms, insects that are considered r selective mean that they tend to be small, reach sexual maturity very fast, have a short gestation time, meaning the time from fertilization to laying eggs is quick, and then the eggs hatch into young at a very fast pace. Insects will also produce high quantities of offspring, which are generally left behind to fend for themselves. The theory being that the more offspring produced equals a greater chance that some of those will survive to pass on their genetic information. In this podcast episode, I'm going to speak of insect anatomy, life cycles, and different types of their metamorphosis. Some insects live their entire life in water, some live their entire life on land, we're going to call those terrestrials, and some live a portion of their life in water and emerge to adulthood on land. I'm going to mention the insect orders with Latin or scientific names. I will then translate the scientific name and I'll use the scientific name down to the family level, which in animals ends in I-D-A-E. I will also use common names, which can be confusing to some as common names are changed based on where you live. Some people might call a certain bug a firefly, while in another state they're known as a lightning bug. And then I'll describe each order and how it relates to fly fishing. Insects have what is called a bilateral symmetrical body plan, which means that the left and right sides are equal in shape and size. Their bodies are segmented and are composed of a head, thorax, and abdomen. The head contains organs for sensation, mouth parts for eating and defense, antenna, which are shaped depending on their need. For example, some moths have plume or feather shaped antenna, which increases the surface area for detecting airborne pheromones from females. So if a female is in the forest at night releasing pheromones saying she's ready to copulate, she's going to send these out from her body and they're going to be caught in the wind and a male moth maybe seven miles away might detect one molecule of her and start following those with his antenna until he finds her in the forest. The head also contains eyes for sight. Now sight might not always form shapes. They're going to detect movement, light intensity, the eyes aren't going to make a perfect image like the Gary Larson cartoon or the fly looking at the woman coming to swat him. That fly is not going to have that exact image of a woman with a rolled up newspaper coming to smack it. It would be equivalent to you taking a handful of straws and putting them up to your eye and each individual straw is going to pick up one point of the object it's looking at. Not always shape forming, but they're definitely going to pick up intensity of light and movement. You're also going to find in the head brains or ganglia, which is a mass or collection of neurons. Behind the head is the thorax. The thorax contains its own three segments, which contain the organs for locomotion. You'll find the wings, which in Latin translates to terra, P-T-E-R-A. You're going to hear that word a lot throughout the podcast. You also find legs, which each insect has three per side. Each leg has six segments, and they're shaped based on their need. Mole crickets have large forelimbs for digging. Some insects have legs for grasping, and others, like grasshoppers, have them for jumping. You will also find associated musculature for running, digging, grasping, jumping, swimming, and flying. Insects are the only invertebrates which have developed the ability to fly. Some insects have a non-wing flexion mechanism, which means they cannot fold their wings flat against their back. After the podcast, you should be able to determine which organisms I mentioned have this based on my descriptions of where the wings are located in the adults. Behind the thorax, you'll find the abdomen. The abdomen is composed of segments, the maximum number being 11, and it contains the organs for digestion, defecation, and respiration. Terrestrial insects have tiny pits or spiracles on their thorax, but the majority are on the abdomen that open to the outside, and gas exchange occurs inside the organism, which prevents desiccation. Some aquatic insects live in water and don't have to worry about their lungs drying out. They have filament or feather like exterior lungs. An aquatic Insects are going to tend to hold in areas where the water is turbulent because that's going to have the most amount of dissolved oxygen. The abdomen also contains defense organs, such as stingers and bees, which are just modified reproductive organs, tails, and reproductive organs, such as ovipositors. Ovipositors are shaped based on where and how an insect lays its eggs. Some are piercing to lay their eggs in other organisms. Those are the parasitic insects. Parasitic wasps will tend to have a longer ovipositor so they can be undetected while they're putting their eggs into another organism which is alive at the time. Now that I've talked about insect anatomy, let's discuss the different types of life cycles. As I mentioned before, some insects live their entire life in water, some live their entire life on land, and some portion of their life may be spent in between. The young insects will emerge from the aquatic life to the terrestrial life by swimming or crawling out of the water, to adulthood, and then they're going to return to the water to mate and lay their eggs, making them an easy prey for fish. Fish depend on these emergencies, or as we'll call them in fishing terms, hatches, for gorging themselves on food to pack on weight. The emerging stage is quite vulnerable, as the insect is trying to break through the water's surface tension and get to safety while exiting their skin. This awkward stage makes them an easy target and a favorite food item for fish. Some insects can't break out of the water in their skin and will drown. Those are known as stillborns. Being able to identify the different stages of the insect being consumed by the fish and matching your fly to that stage, be it shape, color, size, is gonna be key to your fishing success. There are three to four main life cycle stages of insects. The first being the egg, which is deposited by the female. Then the larva or larvae, which is the feeding and growing stage. And in fishing terms, we're gonna call this the nymph. Followed by the pupil stage, the pupil stage is inactive the insect does not feed at this time its protected encased in a cocoon followed by the adult stage which is for feeding and reproduction there are two different types of metamorphosis that I'll now speak of complete and incomplete 85 percent of all insects go through complete metamorphosis complete metamorphic stages are egg larva, pupa and adult now this is a complex life cycle the organism is changing shape and morphology throughout its life, thus the term morph in metamorphosis. The larvae are specialized for eating and growing. They have no compound eyes and the wings develop externally. The pupa are unique stage to this type of metamorphosis and that can be considered like a mummy. It's protected, it's encased, it's not really doing much. It's growing and changing shape. The adult is specialized for moving to new locations and reproducing. The larvae and adult eat different types of food. A caterpillar eats leaves and the moth eats nectar. This reduces competition between individuals of different stages for resources and allows them to take advantage of more than one habitat and food source at different life stages. This stage is more important to fly fishermen as we need to know the different shapes, sizes, and colors to match the variety of stages of the insect. The next type of metamorphosis is incomplete. This accounts for 14% of all insects. The life cycle stages go from egg to nymph to adult. The nymph is the feeding non-reproductive stage. The nymphs also have a compound eye. Following the nymphal stage is the adult stage, which is the reproductive stage. Adult and nymph live in the same location at the same time and compete for the same resources. All stages look the same, but are different sizes and colors. For example, a grasshopper at the first nymphal stage could be one centimeter long and then the second nymphal stage could be two centimeters long the third stage three centimeters long and the adult would be four centimeters long. So what does this mean to you the fly fisherman? Well you can have the same fly pattern but in a variety of sizes to match the different stages you can have a small foam bug that's one centimeters long small foam bug that's two centimeters long small foam bug that's three centimeters long and then finally a fourth one that's four centimeters long When you start throwing these flies to the fish, I don't think they're going to look up at the two centimeter long one and say, you know what, I was kind of in the mood for a third nymphal stage, you know, I'd rather have one that's three centimeters long. They're probably going to eat it. Don't worry too much about the specific size and color of the pattern. Just be sure you've got one pattern in a variety of sizes from small to medium to large to extra large. That should cover all the different stages of the insect. So up to this point I've spoken about a generic background of insects and their history. I've spoken about their anatomy head, thorax, abdomen, and the different types of life cycles aquatic, terrestrial, and metamorphosis being complete and incomplete. Now I'm going to speak about the insect orders and these are the orders that I think are the most important to you being a fly fisherman. There are plenty of other orders out there but we're going to focus on just a handful. The insect orders will start with Coleoptera, Diptera, Ephemeroptera, Hemiptera, Hymenoptera, Lepidoptera, Megaloptera, Odonata, Orthoptera, Plecoptera, and finally, Tricoptera. See, I told you the word terra, P-T-E-R-A, meaning winged, would be used later throughout the podcast. And within these individual orders, I'm gonna mention the Latin name, I'm going to translate the Latin name, I will use the insect's common name, tell you the type of metamorphosis, I will describe different stages of its life, I will describe key identifying characteristics of each order and tell you how to identify them on stream with the naked eye, I will tell you locations in and around the water where you can find these insects, I'll tell you some common name examples and the representative fly imitations that I think you should use to imitate these flies. The first order are the Coleopterans, which translated means shield wing. These are the beetles. They are the most diverse species of all insects. Over 40% of all named insects out there are beetles. Beetles have complete metamorphosis. They get their name from their forewing, which is heavy. Forewing being closest to the head, hindwing being closer to the abdomen. The forewing is quite cumbersome and heavy. It's used to protect the delicate hind wings that are used for flying. Thus, they're the shield winged flying insects. The shielded forewing will meet across their back, divided equally to left and right halves.
0: At Midway USA, we know the AR 15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR 15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on, and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com.
1: Beetles are clumsy flyers due to that heavy shield of a wing, so they often land in water, and being that they're dense organisms, they land with a splat. Examples of beetles would be scarab beetles, Japanese beetles, and June bugs, not to be confused with June bug from I'm Gonna Get You Sucka. Predacious diving beetles, weevils, and ladybugs. Flies that you should use to represent beetles would be round and oblong in profile with that distinct beetle circular shape from below, which is the way the trout's gonna see it. One of my favorite pastimes on Mossy Creek in Virginia is to go to the sycamore tree line section where you can't cast a fly due to overhanging branches. But on those branches and on the sycamore leaves, you can find a whole lot of Japanese beetles. So what Tom and I like to do is grab a handful of the beetles off the leaves, shake them up in our hand to disorient them, then throw them in the water. When the beetles land on the water, they're gonna swirl in circles as if each one was caught in its own individual eddy. They might have their legs tucked underneath them and their hind wings sticking out just a little bit from behind that shield. They're not gonna float in the same way as if they were tied to a tippet, which is in a straight line, because the tippet to the fly limits them going in a circle. Now that these beetles are floating at the mercy of the current all disoriented they're gonna go from upstream downstream towards the trout which are hiding in the sycamores knowing we can't get to them because of the overhanging branches. You can just sit there and hear the trout feeding on them so in essence we're chumming up brown trout with real beetles. It's fun and we're hopefully getting these trout big and fat and one day hopefully they're gonna leave the sycamores and move to a section of the stream where we can catch them Your fly choices for beetles should be composed of foam and deer hair, those are the two major ones. I prefer foam because you can get more creative with the patterns, shapes, sizes. Foam is more dense, it floats higher, you can have a variety of colors which are easy to see, and it lasts longer. The deer hair beetles are going to get waterlogged and sink eventually, the trout teeth are going to destroy them, and I'll go into depth about beetle patterns and my preference for foam in my podcast coming up which is going to be on flies. The next order are the dipterans or true flies. They have a forewing for flying and their hind wing is diminutive and looks like a little badminton racket or ping pong paddle and that's used for balance and is known as the haltier. A good example if you want to see these would be crane flies which hang around your outside house lights at night in the summertime. Dipterans have complete metamorphosis and they hatch in mass all year, which provides consistent sustenance to the fish year round, especially in winter. If you consider a trout eating something so small, people always say, how are you going to catch a fish on such a tiny hook? Why are they eating such small bugs? Well, if you go to the movie theaters and you get a bag of popcorn, you're going to be pretty full after a while of just eating individual pieces. But together as a whole, you're getting a full meal. True fly larvae are round, they are slim and slender, bodied, with defined heads and no legs. The pupae have more developed appendages as they are morphing into an adult. One common example of dipterans you'll encounter fly fishing are the midges. Midges belong to the family Caronimidae. They're also known as the chironomids. They are present in high densities in winter tailwaters and spring creeks. Fish simply open their mouth and gulp the pupae and larvae which are floating at the mercy of the current, as he struggled to hatch to adulthood. Some examples of these flies would be house flies, horse flies, mosquitoes. Another example would be the crane flies which are about the size of the palm of your hand. A girl in college once referred to it as a mosquito hawk. I'm not sure if that was the name of it where she was from or if she thought they were actually mosquitoes but I'm glad mosquitoes are not the size of the palm of our hands. Other examples would be those tiny flies or midges. Salmon maggots, which are the larvae of flies which are laid on the rotting carcasses of salmon on the edges of the riverbanks. You can see some nice pictures of those on my website. And all sorts of grotesquely awesome parasites. Just Google the word botfly and I. Hit images and you'll know what I'm talking about. Larvae and pupil fly imitations, you might want to throw brassies, thread midges, and crane fly larvae, And adults would be griffith gnats, which can be a single fly or a conglomeration or a whole bunch of individual midges or gnats that are mating above the water surface and they're all flying around in different directions trying to mate. So it's basically an orgy. And then they just basically lose track of their flight and they fall into the water. They're too confused to uh, fly. Some other fly representations would be mosquitoes, black gnats, anything kind of tiny that's going to float in the surface or surface film. The next order are gonna be the ephemeropterans or mayflies. Their name translates to short-lived flying insect, which is a misnomer because the adult stage is short-living and that's pretty much what people saw when they described them first. They're known as your mayflies. Mayflies are an indicator species as they require certain environmental factors to live, such as water, quality, the acidity or pH, and clarity and temperature. So if you're not finding them in streams where they should be, you know that the water is off a little. Mayflies have incomplete metamorphosis, and they are a rather ancient order, characterized by their unique tails, known as caudal circe, and an additional molting stage as the adult, known as a subimago. The mayfly larvae sometimes have prolonged lifespans, which is, again, part of their misnomer. And the larvae are usually streamlined, dorso eventually flattened, or top to bottom like a pancake, which allows them to live in and around the stream bottom, detritus and debris, while being held to that detritus and debris without being swept away by the moving water. And they're at risk of being eaten as they leave the water state. Often you'll see them floating down the stream like a regatta with their wings propped up once they have hatched. The ones that don't hatch are going to be consumed by the fish. And you'll also see the fish taking these ones that are floating downstream. You just have to throw your fly and make sure it's got a drift proper, which is going to be having the same speed and direction as the naturals. The adults have bulging eyes. Their large wings are folded above their head at rest, which means they do not have that wing flexion mechanism, and usually an extended abdomen. You'll note that on the fly representations, some have extended bodies past the bend of the hook. The adults have a short-lived adult life. Their mouthparts are vestigial, which means they're non-feeding. The goal of the adult mayfly is to pass on its genetic information. So once they mate, they pretty much die, Once the adults die, they're going to float downstream and their wings will be horizontal to their bodies. Their wings don't really have that non-wing flexion mechanism now. It's going to be to the sides as if they were flying, and these are known as spinners. You can find flies that reproduce this exact stage in their life cycle in the fly bins or if you want to tie them yourselves. Examples of mayflies include the drakes, sulfurs, blooming olives. Blooming olives are known as BWOs. If you want to throw flies that represent mayflies, the larvae, you could start off with a hares ear nymph and a pheasant tail nymph. Those are pretty basic. You can get more complicated ones, but those are easy to tie. They're stocked in every fly shop and they're a go-to fly of myself and Tom. Adults, Catskill style dries, which are going to have the hackle and the little two posts sticking out. The tail will be long and extended to keep the fly balanced on the water. These will be Hendrickson's, March Brown's, Quill Gordon's, and then their wolf equivalents Lee Wolf revolutionized these style flies by putting on a thicker post, thicker body, and a beefier tail, which allowed them to float higher in the water and be seen by the fishermen. Other examples would be BWOs, Tricos. Trico is the abbreviation of their family name, which I don't want to pronounce because I will mess it up. Sulfurs, which get their name because of their color, they're yellowish. White Millers, which are also known as the White Flies, and Drake's. Drakes are a big hatch out west in the end of the summer. White millers around here are pretty big on the Potomac River and the yellow breaches of Pennsylvania. If you're on the breaches in the summertime, it's as if someone turned on a light switch and all of a sudden the sky is full of all sorts of sized flies, particularly the white flies and the fish go crazy and it gets very crowded out there. So it's better to hear the stories about them than actually go and experience it yourself. Not only do these hatches draw a lot of fish, but they're gonna draw a lot of fishermen. So crowding on small streams can be difficult. So we can talk about fishing ethics and crowding in a different episode. However, up next we have Lepidopterans, which means scale winged flying insects. These are known as your butterflies and moths and they have complete metamorphosis. Adults drink calorie rich nectar as a flight fuel Flying is a high calorie requiring activity and requires glucose. Glucose in its purest form can be found as sugar water from plants. Butterflies are also characterized by their wings to the side of horizontal at rest, where moths are characterized by wings over their back at rest. Butterflies typically are out during the day, moths are typically out at night. Lepidopteran larvae are known as caterpillars, and these can be hanging out in trees and going from branch to branch on a strain of silk. Sometimes they lower themselves into the water or they just happen to fall in the water. A defensive mechanism of some caterpillars is just to drop off the branch they're on when something approaches them. In my experience, fish don't like to eat the hairier caterpillars. We used to feed them to the sunfish on Lake Audubon and Reston growing up and we never really got to chum any fish up with the caterpillars. If you got little green inchworms that were hairless, fish tended to eat them. These hairs are known as urticating hairs and they're irritants. If they get stuck in your skin or mucous membranes, they are going to be quite painful. One time, Tom and I were fishing the Salmon River, in New York, and it was warm out, so we put his wading jacket on the shore. One of these brightly colored, hairy caterpillars crawled in his sleeve, and as he put his jacket on, the caterpillar rolled up and down his arm as he put the jacket on, and basically all the little hairs punctured him the entire time. So his arm ballooned up to about the size of a football, and we had to get him some Benadryl very fast. He was not a happy camper. If you want to impersonate the larvae, green weenies, San Juan worms, deer hair caterpillars will all work. Sometimes you can sink them if you want to have a caterpillar that's drowned. Adults, examples, monarch skippers, noctuidae, which is the family of ugly brown moths, as my entomology professor called them. Tiger swallowtails. I don't know of too many adult lepidopteran patterns. Mike Heck from Pennsylvania once gave me a white deer hair moth pattern, but I think he said he caught more bats accidentally on it than fish. I don't really have any good butterfly or moth anecdotes except my dad once cut open a red bell pepper and an adult moth flew out. So now you're thinking how does that story relate to Lepidopterans? Well, as I said before larvae are going to eat one type of food source and the adults another. So caterpillars are going to eat fruits and vegetables mainly leaves. The adults are going to drink the nectar. So at some point, a female moth landed on the pepper and laid the egg. The egg hatched into a larva, which consumed probably the inside of the pepper. I don't know if it intended to end up on the inside, but it probably wanted to pupate and fly the other direction. However, it was on the inside, and luckily for that moth, we cut the pepper open and he flew off. The next order are the hemipterans, or half winged flying insects. They're also known as the true bugs. They have incomplete metamorphosis. You can identify hemipterins by their backs, which have an inverted triangle shape where the wings cross. That's also known as the hemelytron. Hemi meaning half lytron is part of the wing case. They have a variety of shapes of their bodies. Some look like thorns, some look like bird feces, some look like leaves. They have cryptic coloration, and their body parts will often camouflage them with their surroundings. If you get close to some they will walk around the stems to get away from you fly off or also just drop like a caterpillar another characteristic that can help identify them to you is the piercing mouth parts which they will stab insects and drink their fluids insects don't have blood they have something called hemolymph they might stick that into a human to drink blood or they might stick it into a plant to drink fluid from the phloem which is the sugar water produced in the leaves from photosynthesis. So some of these insects will suck the phloem from the plants and they will have extra sugar bypassing their stomach because they're taking in such a large amount of fluid and there's too much for them to consume. So what they do is they excrete this extra water and sugar as drops from their butts, which is known as honeydew. So maybe you've been at a picnic in the summer underneath some oak trees and you felt cool drops and you looked up and said, "It's." sunny out why do i feel these cool drops it's not raining well it's a bug technically defecating on you and now you know that and you can use that as an anecdote at your next picnic they come in a variety of sizes and colors and they're abundant on summer foliage you can shake any plant in the summertime and probably find some examples would be leaf hoppers spittle bugs and frog hoppers leaf footed bugs water boatmen stink bugs box elder bugs box elder bugs will congregate on your south and western facing walls in warm weather in October. And scale insects. Scale insects might be important to you if you like to eat or drink red food. There used to be a dye called cochineal which was made by squeezing scale insects and a red dye came out. Up Until a couple years ago, that was the majority food color in ocean spray products, high sea fruit punch, very fine drinks, etc. It's also used to dye clothing. Some people have an allergy to it and they don't really know what cochineal is when it's on a food label. So the FDA slowly had people take it out of products. You also have cicadas. Not all cicadas are those periodical ones, 15 to 17 years. There are some around here in Virginia. We had them about six or seven years ago. Plus you also get the larger ones which come out every summer. Aphids, which are asexual in nature, which means not all but some of them, the females that is, can reproduce through parthenogenesis or spontaneous reproduction of clones or young from the female without her being fertilized. So if you have one or two female aphids on your plants that you bring in from your deck at the end of the summer and in a couple weeks it's covered in all sorts of aphids, it's because those females were either fertilized before or produced offspring without being fertilized. Now your plants are covered with them. Some insects have unique relationships with aphids, most notoriously are ants. The ants like to drink the honeydew that comes out of their butts, so they basically just have little farms of aphids, and they use their antenna, they sort of tap their butts or abdomen, and they will excrete it on contact. So what do the aphids get out of the relationship? The ants protect them, so if you go near them, the ants are going to defend the ants and the aphids. And you can see this in one of my photographs from Boulder Creek, Colorado on my website. There's also a beetle, the ladybug, in the photo and she is there eating aphids. If you have an aphid infestation in your garden, one way to get rid of them is you can order online or go to your local horticultural center and you can get a bunch of refrigerated ladybugs. They're refrigerated because they are cold blooded and if they're cold they're slowed down metabolically and they can be in a state of suspended animation for a while so they don't really need to eat sleep drink whatever so you get them releasing them your garden they're the number one predators of aphids they'll do a lot of damage to them however they fly so they might fly off from your garden either way you've got rid of some of your aphids examples of flies vince marinero created the jacid to represent the leafhopper my splat cicada or pretty much any small foam terrestrial should work as long as it's got legs, the fish can see it, it floats, it makes a nice little splat on the water, you should be okay. I've never really had a fish reject the fly saying, you know, that's just not the right size aphid, that's not the right size leafhopper, stink bug, wheelback bug, etc. Next up are the hymenopterans, and if you haven't caught on yet, I'm doing these alphabetically. Hymenopterans mean membrane-winged flying insects. They're known as your ants, bees, and wasps they're also known as your social insects because they live in colonies together they exhibit complete metamorphosis they have a very thin forewing if present and hindwing not all have wings if you look up velvet ant which is a black and red hairy little wasp they don't have wings they walk around on the ground and they look like ants you touch them they can sting you wasps also have a unique identifying characteristic which is a very narrow segment Join the thorax to the abdomen known as the pedicel. Bees are unique because their stinger is a modified female reproductive organ. Thus worker or male bees can't sting you. So when you flip through the Guinness Book of World Records and there's a guy covered in a bee beard or a suit of bees, he's in no danger because those are all males and males don't have stingers. The person probably has a locket around their neck and inside that locket is a female or a queen releasing pheromones. All the males are attracted to her. Ants produce something called formic acid, which is why they are the family formicidae. That little bit of formic acid may be quite appetizing to trout, which may account for trout singling out ants in the summertime. I've eaten ants before. It's as if you poured a little bit of lemon Kool-Aid into your hand and ate the powder. I'll see if I can find the pictures of some high school friends and I in the Amazon eating lemon ants, which is uh, how I got the analogy of lemon Kool-Aid.
2: They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: There are also several non-hymenopteran insects that mimic hymenopterans in color and almost in shape for protection. If you're black and yellow like a wasp, you're basically saying, don't come near me. I'm dangerous. So other organisms have evolved to have that same color pattern. There are flies, example, a hover fly, will have the same patterns and banding, basically adopting that color saying, don't come near me, I'm dangerous, even though they're harmless. You can tell a hover fly from a wasp because the fly itself does not have a pedestal and the eyes on a fly, true flies that is, the dipterans, look more like a bundle of straws put together or a screen with a bunch of very large separations. The wasp eye is going to be black and shield-like, as if it was wearing wraparound aviators. Some examples would be carpenter ants, picnic ants, also known as sugar ants, honeybees, bumblebees, and you can tell a bumblebee from a carpenter bee because a bumblebee has a hairy butt. It has a hairy butt, so pollen can stick to it. Carpenter bees have shiny butts. The shiny part is because there's no hair. If you dig and tunnel through wood, if you have hairs on you, it's going to impede with you going through that tunnel also cicada killers which is a very large wasp I once saw one take a three inch cicada out of the sky in the summer it held the cicada against a tree and stabbed it repeatedly with its ovipositor or stinger which basically made the cicada alive but paralyzed the female then laid eggs inside of the cicada those eggs would hatch to larvae which would feed from the cicada the inside out, and then hatched into adults. Kind of gruesome, but very cool. Yellow jackets, parasitic wasps, uh, such as akenumens, would be examples. You see a lot of akenumens on your outside lights at night in the summertime. Very long pedestal. And if you don't know what that cicada killer is, look it up. It's pretty cool. They are huge. Fly examples, cork bees, thread ants, dubbed ants, foam ants, and the ever-famous Chernobyl ant. The Chernobyl ant can be tied in a variety of colors and sizes. I carry them from small, medium to large to represent basically any of these hymenopterans and flies I'm going to talk about next. Which brings us to the next order, which are the megalopterans, or giant wing flying insects. Known as dobson flies and fish flies, they have complete metamorphosis and they have some very unique characteristics other than being huge. The larvae are known as helgrammites and they are nasty little critters, but extremely important to fly fishing. I once got one in my shoe and it bit me and I stuck it on a fly and I caught about seven smallmouth before the little bugger came apart into a couple pieces and was no longer useful. So how did it bite me? Well, I'll get into that. Helgrammites can be up to several inches long. They are dorso-ventrally flattened with several tactile appendages which are similar to caterpillar legs which are not exactly legs, they're premature or pro-legs. And the Helgrammite legs are separated by puffy white external lungs. I used to keep these guys in my fish tank and you would see these little legs moving like a centipede and little white pom-poms of gills sticking out. They live under rocks and logs and among detritus and have very large mandibles, mandibles being jaws and they are very hard and they will bite you. If you buy them as bait, sometimes they will cut the heads off of them before they sell them to you. Adults can be identified by having large pincer-like mandibles on the males with huge wings that extend past the abdomen, thus the name, Giant Wings. Those wings are heavily veined, like a leaf, and they also have long antennae. The adults leave the water and can be found near gas station lights along the river in the summertime. You could say that Helgrammites would be positively phototrophic, which means they're attracted to light. So Tom and I were driving through the GW forest and his headlights were being attacked by Helgermites. He stopped the car and I got out to look and these things I swear were coming after me to bite me. They were the size of sparrows, small bats, whatever, but uh, it wasn't pleasant and it was like being in a horror movie. They were swarming the headlights. I needed a tennis racket to get them out of my way. The adults are leaving the water in search of mates and headlights and people to attack like myself. They're gonna mate and the females are gonna return to the river and they're gonna lay a velvety white patch of egg mass on the rocks. The eggs will then hatch to larvae. The larvae drop into the water and grow into Helgrammites. Flies that you want to throw, if you want to throw Helgrammite patterns, go with Bill Skelton's Helgrammite. It's got the mandibles, the flattened head, the extra legs, the gills. It's got a great looking body. I'd also go with any kind of black woolly bugger fished along the bottom, anything black, zonker strips. And when Helgrammites move throughout the water, they're gonna be walking on the bottom, but if they're actually suspended in the water, they're gonna move in sort of a V shape because they're gonna flip their head towards their tail and then back again, sort of swimming through the water. Adults, big flies, cicada flies will work. You can use big stonefly patterns, which we'll talk about soon, and Chernobyl ants. The next order are the odonates, or odonata. These are your toothy insects, known as dragonflies and damselflies. They have incomplete metamorphosis. All larvae of the odonates are predaceous. Dragonflies, have their wings horizontal when at rest they do have a wing flexion mechanism they're fast flyers and can move up to 18 miles an hour and have incredible sight you'll often see the skin from the nymphs on dock pilings and plants along the shore such as cattails because they crawl to the edges and escape Damselflies have their wings pulled back during rest they're slow flyers they usually flit or flutter from shrubs to plants around the water's edge. And the nymphs are slow swimmers in the water and they make for easy prey. Fish will jump out of the water to eat the adults. Examples of adult dragons and damsels, darners and skimmers. Flies you want to throw, marabou damsel nymphs. My quick damsel nymph, which is three or four feathers tied to a hook with some dumbbell eyes. Those are my go-to flies for any situation. I've caught fish in fresh and salt water. I don't normally fish dragonfly nymphs. I've never really discovered a pattern that I like to tie myself. There's a whole lot of adult patterns out there from damsels and dragons, usually pretty intricate with a lot of extra parts. We'll talk about those parts in the next podcast on flies. The dragonfly and damselfly adults I prefer to tie are fairly simple. They have foam head, abdomen, and thorax and an extended thorax made of Rubber legs, they have a pretty simple set of wings made from synthetic hair. They're quite effective and they're easy to tie and they work, so I go with that. The next order of insects are orthopterans. Orthopteran meaning straight-winged flying insect. These are known as your grasshoppers and crickets, which can be further subdivided by the length of antenna. Short-horned are known as the acritidae and longhorn or tetaginidae. They're further characterized by having large hind legs with musculature for jumping. The legs are also used to rub against another body part to make noise. When insects rub two body parts together to make noise, it's called stridulating. You can tell the temperature based on stridulations per minute. If you go to my website, robsnowhite.com, click on Podcasts, Series 1, Episode 2, Entomology, I have links for two different calculations for how to do this yourself. Insects being cold-blooded, their body activity will be directly related to the ambient temperature. So if it's colder outside, they're not going to move their body as much, and thus the stridulations will be fewer and far between. If it's warmer out, they can move their bodies more, and they will produce more sounds. Orthopterans are not the best flyers, so that's one reason why they end up as fish food. They usually fly to escape predators and land whichever direction they can fly, and they can't fly for too long, so if they end up over water, they're gonna land in it. They're also gonna fall off of branches, shrubs, and other plants lining the water. You can chum up fish with grasshoppers if you take one and shake it in your hand to disorient it. You gotta throw it fast in the water. If you don't throw it fast enough, it's gonna take flight before it hits the water. They're either gonna float downstream with the current, or they're gonna swim to the bank. If you don't disorient them enough, they're going to swim to the bank and you won't be able to see a fish eat them. I forgot to mention that these insects have incomplete metamorphosis, so if you want to carry patterns, you can really only carry one pattern, but just make sure it's of different sizes, small, medium, large, and extra large. Some examples of orthopterans are green tree crickets, black crickets, katydids, grasshoppers, etc. Fly examples would be foam hoppers, dave hoppers, Latort hoppers. Scott Sanchez patterns and of course my own patterns which you can find on my website robsnowwhite.com Grasshopper patterns are great in a tandem dry dropper rig which is when you have a foam or deer hair hopper as your lead fly which is tied closest to the fly line. From that you'll have a piece of tippet 18 to 24 inches of a lighter material tied to the bend of the hook and a smaller fly tied to that it can be a dry or a wet fly. If your dry fly disappears and you see your grasshopper move, you probably have a bite and you can set your hook. You're using it as a strike indicator. The fish might also go for the larger fly. If the fish doesn't want the larger fly, it might decide to take the second one, which would be your ant. Another benefit is you can float the hopper with a nymph suspended at that 18 to 24 inch depth below it knowing that you are not going to snag your dropper fly on the bottom. So if you see your grasshopper go down, lift your rod, set the hook, you might have a fish. The next insect order are the Plecopterans, which translates to tent wing. These are your stone flies. The adults are characterized by having their wings folded over the thorax and abdomen at rest. They have complete metamorphosis and like the mayflies are intolerant to pollution. The larvae are similar to mayflies but bulkier. They are dorsoventrally flattened with shovel shaped heads and prominent wing cases on the thorax, pronounced legs protruding to the side, usually at a 90 degree angle, and one pair of prominently forked tails. The larvae tend to climb out of water on rocks and waders, and they will climb up on you and you won't notice them until they get on your neck or crawl across your sunglasses. Stoneflies hatch throughout the year, with the winter hatches producing constantly feeding fish such as steelhead and trout closer to tailwaters. Large stoneflies can be a whole meal in one gulp and may look like hummingbirds in flight. Some examples of stoneflies would be yellow sallies, salmon flies, golden stones, and that little black winter stone. You can see those a lot around here on the Potomac crawling around this time of year on rocks and logs along the riverbank. Larvae examples would be Kaufman stoneflies and any of Mike Mercer's epoxybacks or other stonefly patterns. Mike Mercer, you can find his flies at the fly shop. Mike Mercer's flies are quite intricate and detailed and I've caught quite a lot of trout, salmon and steelhead on his various patterns, I would definitely look into the website and check out the fly shop. Adults you want to throw stimulators, pillow stones, foam stones, Chernobyl ants will work, Anything that's sort of large and big and if you're into a big hatch, make sure you're throwing them at the right speed of the water so you're not confusing the fish as to why your fly is moving faster than the naturals. The next order are the trichopterins or hairy winged insects. These are known as your caddisflies and they have complete metamorphosis. The larvae live in around and amongst rocks, logs and detritus on the stream bottoms. They may or may not build housing or casings depending on the species. Some housings are made of silk, which is excreted from their abdomen, and they'll combine that with sand, rock, and detritus to form a housing. Some of the housings are attached to the substrate, and some are attached to their bodies, which makes them look like a little green worm in the sleeping bag, and those are mobile. Abdominal hooks will hold the housings to their bodies so they don't get swept away. I once found a caddis with a case made of minute snail shells. These were the itty bitty ones the size of a pinhead, and all of them were oriented in the same direction. Before I realized what a cool find I had, I threw it back in the water and not realized it. Larvae have round worm-like bodies with pronounced heads and legs, and they swim to the surface trailing their skin, which makes them vulnerable. Those are gonna be your caddis emergers. The adults have an erratic flight pattern and swarm over the water when they're mating. The adults sometimes hatch in mass, such as black caddis in the Shenandoah National Park of Virginia, the Mother's Day hatch on the Arkansas, and once, my wife and I were driving from Breckenridge, Colorado to Aspen, and the caddis were so thick on the eagle and the roaring fork that we had to turn on our windshield wipers. Larvae, imitations would be green wire caddis and gummy caddis, and green weenies. Emergers would be Gary LaFontaine patterns. Adults would be Elcare caddis, Goddard caddis, Hemingway caddis, and small stimulators. There's a plethora of caddis larvae and adults. Find one that you like, that works for you and that you can see and stick to it. To summarize what I've talked about in this episode, I've been trying to keep it simple and not too technical. I've described the background on insects and their importance with relation to fish. I've described insect anatomy, life cycles, and different types of metamorphosis, the insect orders, Latin names, Latin names translated, and their common name, or at least the common name as it relates to me in Northern Virginia. I've described the different stages in their life cycles and key identifying characteristics for you to identify them on the stream with the naked eye. I've told you their location in and around the water so you know where to throw your fly. I've described some representative examples by common name and their representative fly imitations for you to tie or pick up at your local shop. And overall, fish eat bugs because the bugs often come to them in the current unless the fish is in a lake or pond and they're swimming to find it. They don't have to go after them in streams. Just as you can fill up on a bowl of popcorn a fish can fill up on tiny midges. So get out there appreciate insects, look at your car's grill in the summertime, shake some plants along the stream, look under leaves turn over rocks in turbulent water. Put a fine mesh net in the water and then kick up the rocks and see what gets caught in that net. And don't forget to look up when filling your gas tank near rivers at night. You'll find caddisflies, mayflies, and dobson flies hanging out, attracted to that light. I thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast on entomology. For more information, questions, or comments, you can reach me at robsnowwhite.com. That's Snow White with one W. And if you'd like to support the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast, please visit dragonflyfishing.com. The next podcast will be my rants and theories on flies, I hope it's entertaining and educational, and I hope you download it. Until next time, I wish you good hatches.